0: Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. On today's episode, we have Kerry McCauley. Kerry has done two seasons of Discovery Channel's Dangerous Flights. He has written a book called Ferry Pilot Nine Lives over the North Atlantic. Kerry has been ferrying single-engine piston aircraft across the Atlantic for years. He hasn't gone without his fair share of adventure, and he's decided to chat to us today about it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. So, Kerry, it's an absolute pleasure to to have you on. Um, Welcome. Uh, just for my listeners who, who are at home, might not know who, who yeah, you are. Uh, Kerry, you're, you're a ferry pilot. You've racked up over 9,000 flight hours. Uh, you've done two seasons of Discovery Channel's Dangerous Flights. You've been trained as a crew chief on Hueys in the National Guard, and you've also done a winter uh, survival instructor's course. You're a Skydive instructor with 20,000 jumps. You own Skydive Twin Cities, and you were a jump pilot as well. Your flights do very fine. as partaking taking to sixty countries, three oceans, and fifty different aircraft. Have I missed anything out there?
1: <laughs> no, that's uh, that's the high points. Yep, <laughs> I do oh, a lot. Amazing
0: careers. Like, how, how would you even start with that? Like, let, let's let's go back to the to the, to the very start. And how, how? What got you into aviation?
1: Well, I was originally inspired by my my uncle, who's who I'm named after, Kerry McCalla. He's a Navy, Naval aviator, he flew S2 trackers off aircraft carriers, uh, hunting Russian subs back in the day. So I grew up listening to his, uh, all his stories and that just inspired me to, to be a pilot. And uh, my, first, my first gig was, you know, when I was 17, my friend and I joined the National Guard and went to basic training in between our junior and senior year of high school. So I was in the military before I even left school, and uh, then became a Huey crew chief, and just got started. Brilliant,
0: absolutely. And what what made you want to become a Huey crew chief? Is there anything in particular that um that that jumped out at you to thought, oh, I want to do that?
1: No, that was just the 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 quickest way I could get on a flight crew. I mean, you didn't have to be an officer, go to college, or anything. You know, immediately. Go to Huey maintenance and crew chief school, and boom, you're you're a, you're in flight crew right off the bat. So yeah, by 18, I was I was flying. Brilliant.
0: And what does uh, crew crew chief um, kind of instruction look like? What what would you have to do now to to become before you were fully qualified and battle ready, as to say?
1: Well, to start off, uh, the crew chiefs are first and foremost mechanics. You have to know everything about the aircraft. So you can, you know, so you can fix it if there's anything goes wrong. Um, so you go to maintenance school, that's 90% of it. And then you, then you learn how to sling load stuff under the, under the helicopter. Um, you're also the door gunner. So you're shooting the M60 machine gun out the side, which was cool. A lot of fun. <laughs> um, and doing everything. I mean, the crew chief is actually kind of the guy in charge of the, hair. He- aircraft the pilots they just go where you tell them to go the crew chief is the guy in the back he's the one who's really in charge it's his aircraft so i really like that aspect of it
0: that was brilliant had you any aspects when when you were doing that had you any aspects to actually go on and fly the chopper as well or was it just you were happy doing that
1: oh no i was uh i was fully planning on going to um either army flight school or air force or navy but shortly after I got started that, you know, I started taking civilian flying lessons to to get started, um, you know, because I just wanted to fly. I wanted to be a pilot. And I was going to college at the time, but that's when I heard about ferry flying. One of my fellow crew chiefs, his father actually owned the company, the aircraft delivery company. And he told me, hey, I just, you know, I said, where you been? He's like, oh, I just got back from Africa. Like, Africa? What the hell? Tell me more. And he told me all about fairy flying. And right there I said, I, I have to do that. That's the job. That's the aviation job for me. I mean, there's no other aspect of aviation that really epitomizes the, the adventure of aviation as a fairy flight. So I kind of, my career kind of took a turn right there. I said, let's go do that.
0: Brilliant. And obviously yeah, when you decided you were going to do that, how far into your training were you?
1: Yeah. I barely started I I maybe had 10 or 15 hours of flight training you know so like yeah so it was pretty dying like oh cool what do you need to be a ferry pilot uh, all your ratings and 1500 hours great I've got 10 hours and zero ratings let's go
0: <laughs> I love that. I love how you picked up exactly what you wanted to do that quite early in. Because I know myself going through flight training and everything, it was, oh, I'm not quite sure what I want to do with this when I get to the end of it. But you had a clear goal to what you wanted to do, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And how, how did you find your, your flying training uh, as, you, as you were going through it?
1: How did I how did I like it? How did I find it? Or... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved it. You know, I... I, as soon as I started flying, I knew that's, that's where I was meant to be. I mean, I just, I loved flying. I loved every aspect of it. I loved the technical aspect. I loved learning about the aircraft. You know, as a Huey mechanic, I was very interested in how everything on the airplane worked. Um, I loved the flying itself. I loved navigation. I loved flying at night. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I just uh, went whole hog. Brilliant. So
0: I'm rereading your book and uh, you seem to have quite an interesting time during your flying training where they're trying to impress girls and stuff like that I and mean, when they're not meant to be in the aircraft but taking them for, for dates which is which is really really funny. Uh, can you tell us, tell us a bit about that?
1: Oh yeah yeah I am I have a thing I'm not I'm not a real big stickler for rules and regulations I kind of tend to bend bend things a little bit I'm a little bit of a cowboy then and it kind of came out right away in my flight training. Yeah, I was dating this girl and uh, I was just about done with my flight training. And I said, you know, I'm gonna take her for a ride. And, uh, you know, so I I was cleared to solo and do cross country. So I rented the airplane for my flight school and went and flew, picked her up at a different airport and uh, took her for a ride, you know, thought I impressed her and she she was thoroughly impressed. I didn't tell her I didn't actually have a license. Yeah, I said, just said, yeah. I'm a pilot <laughs> and uh so we flew around and you know I said hey well how about we get some dinner after this you know you want to go out with me basically you know keep the night going she's sure I go well I'll tell you what we'll land back where my car is and we'll go on from there and as I was taxiing back up to the flight school I realized oh crap I'm not supposed to have her in here <laughs> like, duck down. she's like what well, just just ducked down at that point, I kind of had to fess up to her, like, yeah, you're not supposed to be in here, I'm not supposed to be carrying passengers, but uh, it worked out because here we are, uh, 27 years later, still married, I married
0: her. I love that, that that's so, so funny, Um, because like, like you were saying, you're not meant to have her in there, but did, did you, when you landed at the same airport where your car was, did you forget that you weren't meant to have her in there, or?
1: pretty much i was just enamored with the with her and i'm so confident at at, in my skills at the time you know i had a whole 40 hours or something you know like yeah i got this you know no problem like oh wait i can't i'm supposed to do this (laughs) oh yeah
0: i love it and then so so you you've you've got your license um but then you found another kind of art in aviation which is skydiving how did you stumble across the, the sport of skydiving?
1: Um, you know, I just come back, I, I come back from Army Air Assault School, which is where they t- teach you how to rappel out of helicopters, do aviation assaults from helicopters in the Army. And I tell you, rappelling out of the helicopter from 100 feet up, that was, that was scary because that's heights. And I loved the school, one of the hardest schools the army has. And I got back from that, I said, that was amazing. I want to do more stuff like that. And a friend of mine knew an instructor at this little school out in the middle of the countryside in Wisconsin. And said we should go take skydiving lessons. So I went and did that, and uh, just loved it. Um, and of course, on my very first jump, I had to I had to break the rules again, you know, because that's what I do. Um, back then we it was so long ago this is 1996 we didn't have radios for the students to tell them where to go so they had a big cloth arrow on the ground you know a yellow arrow with a black arrow on, or yellow with a black arrow and they would spin it around you're supposed to point the way it was pointing and I jumped out and opened a parachute like wow that was amazing I love this and I looked back at the field and the arrow was pointed in a direction that I didn't that I didn't agree with because I had all this experience, you know, none. Um, and I went, ah, I just did my own thing, you know, because I'm a pilot now. Actually, I didn't even have my rating at the time. I still was halfway through my flight training, and I just flew my own pattern and came in and landed. I really did a great job because I was kind of a natural at it, you know. Boy, they were mad that they didn't listen to them at all. They were, they were fit to be tied. But uh, I was, I was hooked. Skydiving was amazing.
0: Brilliant! Because I've, I've done it myself. I've been brought up around the Irish Pressure Club, so I know exactly what you mean about the arrow and everything as well. Um, but it's, it's 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 a feeling that you can't really describe to anybody um, when when you do it and afterwards. So you you got hooked by the adrenaline. You just went and, went and did more, um, and, and before you before you know it, you you found yourself where where you are now. I'd say.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I was just uh, hooked. I did two jumps that first day, and. I never went back, you know. I've just been jumping constantly since then, and uh, yeah, right now I have all my ratings—20,000 uh, jumps. I'm went to the wind tunnel yesterday. My my daughter works. I'm out here in California visiting right now, and I, you know, indoor skydiving. I'm kind of sore from the wind tunnel, but uh in another couple hours, I'm going back and do some more do some more indoor skydiving. It's, that's
0: what i do i love it absolutely love it so Kerry, how, how long was it then because you became a, a a jump pilot basically so you you were flying the, the guys to altitude and, and dropping them out uh, how long was it before you you actually decided that because i know you were chatting to one of the was it chief instructor at the time or the dz owner and um, that you want, needed him to let you to start flying jumpers
1: Um, you know, I started skydiving and, you know, immediately continued to continue to start my flying training. But I knew that I, you know, skydiving can get expensive, you know, and so I figured it's a good way to make some money. So as soon as I had my pilot's license, probably within the first year of of getting my skydiving license, I hit up the the owner to start letting me fly jumpers. So within the year.
0: Brilliant! Oh, well, it didn't take it that long. And in in your book, um, you, you described about what your kind of induction to uh, dropping skydivers was like. And you you had the the club chief instructor kneeling behind you, shouting orders at you, basically in in your ear. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's how you check people out in skydiving planes because they only have the one seat, the seat for the pilot, and. Uh, yeah, he would just sit and kneel behind me and say, do this, do that, do that. open the door, let the first load of jumpers out. A couple of practices and then uh, think you got it? Yep. And he opens the door and he jumps out and boom, I'm solo in the plane.
0: <laughs> and
1: since then that's how I check out pilots now too. And uh, when i check out skydiving pilots so i do the same thing you know once they and i don't tell him i'm gonna do that that's always a surprise like we do some landings like i think you got it. he goes yeah i think i got it i go good and i'll open the door and i jump out and they're like okay <laughs> i guess i'm alone now
0: it's like a baptism of fire when your instructor just disappears out the door and is like, uh oh, where's he gone? pretty much did he give you any heads up that he was gonna do that at all or did he just go for it
1: Nope, nope. I think everybody who teaches skydiving—that's how they do it. It's it's great to to, to spring it on them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I feel sorry for the poor students sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you you had quite an interesting experience flying formation in, into into a cloud then, uh, which was is part of your book as well. And it was quite a quite a hair that would probably turn most people off of flying. Um, where you, where you went in and your artificial horizon was, wasn't working.
1: Yeah, yeah. Most of the planes, you know, back down the skydiving planes were really rough. I mean, they took out everything they could that wasn't necessary because you want the plane to be as light as possible because you are climbing altitude. And a lot of times the instruments didn't work because they're expensive to fix. And, you know, these are clubs and not a lot of money. So most of the airplanes have great big gaping holes in the instrument panel where instruments usually are. And the plane I was flying you know the artificial horizon never worked from day one I, I'd never seen it work and the, the DG didn't work and pretty much all you have is the compass and I know even on that one the the turn coordinator didn't work so really all you had was the airspeed indicator a compass and the ball which is absolutely not <laughs> enough if you're going to fly into clouds and that particular day we went into clouds it really surprised me we we're in a three-plane formation climbing up to 10,000 feet and the lead pilot was the chief pilot. He was my mentor. I mean, I think he had 5,000 hours at the time and done everything. And you you assume that guy's God, you know, you'll, I'll follow him anywhere. And we turned a corner around a cloud and we're headed right for a big monster cloud. And I I was like, why aren't we turning? We shouldn't fly into that. That's, that's bad. I know I'm new, but I know that's bad. And we plowed right into it. And so we scattered and uh, I, I had no instruments to to maintain control of the plane so I just tried to keep it as slow as possible but you know all of a sudden the airspeed airspeed starts building uh, it got really dark in that cloud even picked up a little bit of ice wow and it looked like I felt the g-forces pushing me down in the seat and I didn't know am I, am I in a spin am I vertical am I inverted I have no idea Pull the throttle back to keep the speed but I was doing everything I could to keep the wings from from being ripped off the plane and we came out of the bottom of the cloud at about a 70 degree bank and going really fast. That was exciting.
0: It sounds exciting and I'd say the poor jumpers in the back were kind of happy when you came out and you were still in one piece and flying and managed to recover it. Did Did you get to drop them afterwards or did you just land?
1: Oh no! They jump. They're, you skydivers never land in the airplane. If you want to scare the hell out of a skydiver, you make them land in the plane. Yeah. Even after that, they uh they said we would like to get out now, please. <laughs> We've had enough of this flying and airplane stuff. Can we can we leave? We're like, it's actually pretty a uh, testament to their faith in me that they were still there because at any point during that whole emergency they could have said, you know what, bye, <laughs> open the door. let. Looks like you got a, got some problems on your hand. I think we're going to go skydiving now, and let you deal with this yourself, so.
0: Well, I was thinking with... uh, sharing is caring aspect of it, share the problem.
1: Yeah, right.
0: You had to do a, talking about those like skydivers landing in the aircraft, which did, you had an engine failure in it. It was a Cessna 182 with a load of skydivers in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'd uh, just taken off. I was only about 2,500 feet AGL. And as a huge bang and the engine started shaking really bad. And I immediately turned back toward the airport and try to figure out what the problem is. But it was quite violent and the you know, throttle the engine way back and we were going down. And after, you know, a few seconds, I get a tap on the shoulder say, hey, can we leave? I'm like, you're still here? Why are you guys still here? You, should... The second it did that, they should have left and, you know, by the time they kind of got their act together, we were going through 1500, feet and it's just too low. I was like I'm sorry you guys missed your chance now now we're all in this together. <laughs> we get to dead stick an airplane together. Tell me how I do after we landed. <laughs> I managed to get her back to the, to the runway and they were but they were quite unhappy that they had to land in the plane. they, they wanted to get out really bad. I can imagine. I can
0: imagine you turned around after you stopped the aircraft in the runway. You would obviously be sitting there with scorecards with 10 and 9s on them and stuff because rating how you did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they were pretty happy that I that I did a good job and got them to the ground in one piece.
0: That's, that's always a bonus, and especially when it comes to aviation, because when things go wrong, they go really, really wrong. So the fact that you were able to walk away from it with everybody and the aircraft still in one piece is, is a testament to yourself and stuff. So that's a really, really cool thing to have done. Um, you then you're building your hours you need to get ratings under your belts because you still haven't made it to, to ferry uh, pilot yet so you went out and bought a, a twin
1: yeah yeah we bought a friend and uh, me and a couple of buddies uh, army helicopter pilots bought a uh, twin Comanche real uh, nice light twin super plain real sweet even had a picture of Snoopy on the tail it was pretty cool,
0: pretty cool. <laughs> we well, I-
1: multi-engine hours
0: that, that was it. And how many did you need before the Ferry guys would even look at you?
1: Well, I don't remember how many multi-engine hours you needed. I think it was a couple hundred, but they, you know, for sure that you had to have your multi-engine rating and some experience because a lot of the planes are multi-engine planes. Um, you know, the interesting thing is when when we bought that plane, one of the guys, one of the three partners didn't have a license at all. And the two of us, my, we didn't have our multi-engine rating, you know, so we took our training in that plane and uh, um, got our multi-engine ratings in it. But at the time, the two of us, my friend and my, my best friend, me and my best friend, we had maybe 100 hours apiece. So we're pretty inexperienced and yeah. about a lot of twin. That, that's
0: mad. And did you find it as an advantage to learning in your own aircraft to, to oppose to, to renting an aircraft to go and learn in.
1: Yeah, I really liked having our own airplane because, you know, a few maintenance issues came up and my friend, he was also a former Army crew chief, so mechanic. So we both uh, worked on the airplane, saved a little money there. Um, you know, whenever we needed to use it, it was available. We didn't have to fight other students for the plane. And got you really got to know that plane, and we just hired a hired an instructor to teach us in that and it was it was uh, worked out really well. That's, That's awesome.
0: first It sounds like you had you had a bit of fun with it, but it came well. It was lucky for yourselves, but not lucky for the aircraft. It, it ended up coming to an untimely end, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just uh, my 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 buddy. He got his multi-engine rating first. And then him and the other partner who didn't have any ratings at all, they went to army helicopter school and I stayed home cause I was, wasn't going to do that. And I got my multi-engine rating. And then one Christmas I flew down to the flight, their flight school to pick them up, to bring them home for Christmas and to build some more multi-engine time, which is why we bought the plane. Uh, flew, we flew home, had a good Christmas and on the time to bring them back to flight school. It was, uh, it was a pretty cruddy day. Real, A big snowstorm was hitting Minnesota, and we had brought along another guy. And We decided that the other pilot, the other of the three, us three owners, he wanted to sit up front because he never got to fly an airplane that he owned. and He didn't have a license, but he figured he'd sit up front. So I had to sit in the back, and uh, my friend Lee and John, the other two owners, they sat up front. And not, neither of those guys also had an instrument rating. So we're taking off in low clouds and heavy snow, but we figured we could go eastbound, get a, skirt around the storm underneath the clouds, VFR and then get clear and then head south. And we flew along for a ways and the, the clouds got lower and lower and the snow got heavier. And after a while I was like, you know, this is kind of stupid. This is how guys get killed. Maybe we should land. The other pi- pi- pilot that we picked up to get a ride home with us, another Army pilot, he had his multi-engine instrument rating. So say, let's put the guy with the multi-instrument rating up front. That probably is a good idea. So we were going to land at this little airport in Wisconsin to to change pilots, and we, you know, it took us a while to find it in the snowstorm. But we found, we found it. it. I, was I was pretty still- uh, pretty happy sitting in the back, like, okay, we didn't die so far. We're on, you know, it's over the runway. Starts flaring. And I look out at the side of the window, I'm like, boy, I've never been in the back of the plane when it was landing. And I thought to myself, boy, that's an odd angle. It's really nose high. It almost it sure feels weird back here. It just it almost feels like we're gonna hit the tail first. And then we hit tail first, which is not the correct technique if you're gonna land it like twin, you don't, <laughs> you wanna land on the rubber things, you know, the tire stuff, Round not, ones, not the tail. <laughs> Because what it, what the pilot was trying to do, he he'd been flying nothing but helicopters for six months, and he literally out of muscle memory, he tried to hover a twin Comanche, and as any of you um, aviation nuts know, you can't hover a twin Comanche, a light like plane. They don't. You need it to be like a helicopter type aircraft, and yeah. So we hit tail first. It skipped once. It skipped the second time, and I, I screamed power because you know we were gonna stall and crash right there, and he. Uh, He jammed the throttles full forward. And the second he did that, the aircraft torque rolled 90 or 45 degrees to the left, went pointed 45 degrees off the runway. And the weirdest thing happened. For me, time stood still. It was just like the matrix. I don't know if you've heard people describe this when there are car accidents, like everything was in slow motion. It absolutely stopped for me. I I could see everything as clear as a bell. It was so weird. I looked like, Okay, well, our left wingtip is gonna hit that snowbank right there. We're gonna cartwheel across that ditch. We're gonna cartwheel across that little field there into that line of trees. And I'm not even wearing my seatbelt. We're dead. And I put my hands down and time started again. But my friend right at that point saved our lives. He chopped the throttles, leveled the wings, we hit the snowbank belly first, skipped over that ditch, level, slashed down on the on the ground on the other side, and did three three sixties like a frisbee along the ground before coming to a stop, and uh, and that was the end of Snoopy. <laughs> Smoke was coming out of the wings, and we were like, "Holy shit, we just crashed!" Let's get out of here! And we set the land speed record for three big guy, four big guys getting out of that twin Comanche. I tell you,
0: at any point, like you, you, it's it's quite a traumatic experience. At any point did you think, nah, this isn't for me anymore?
1: No, um, you know that's that's the weird thing about a, a lot of my career. I've had way more than my share of emergencies in both skydiving and flying. i have just, and for some reason. I don't really get affected by that. I might get the shakes afterwards and the adrenaline shakes, the knees are going, it's like holy cow, but um, I've got this weird sense of it's going to be okay. I'm going to survive this stuff. I don't know how that is. You know, since I was a young boy, I'd always kind of pushed myself into as many dangerous and emergency situations as I could. I just kind of, that's kind of who I am. It's what I love doing. And I think handling emergencies is a lot like any other skill, like skiing or riding a bike or anything. The, the earlier you start, the better you are at them. Mm. Um, just like learning a language. A little three-year-old learns a, fo- a foreign language super easy. You know, I started it right away. And so I've just kind of developed this skill at being calm in emergency situations. And even at, which has really, really saved my life many times. Um, But even afterwards, it's like, wow, that was exciting. Let's go do it again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I completely agree with what what you mean about, um, what you're saying the earlier you start with it, um, the more accustomed you you become to being put under that pressure and having to think on the spot. Because you said in a few times in your book, which I quite like as well, is if you've got time to panic, you've got time to do something about the emergency, uh, which has obviously
1: worked for you because here we are. Yeah. Still here. Yeah. That's, that's the hardest thing to teach people. I mean, there's so many people, especially not, not especially pilots, but a lot of pilots these days, a lot of society, you know, wraps kids in bubble wrap, you know, everything is safety, 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 you know, wear helmets. Don't do that. That's, you know, and so they, they grow up not skinning their knees, not banging their head, not getting into trouble. So, and they're like flight schools these days. A lot of the planes, they're, they're pristine, they got glass cockpits and they're just well maintained, nothing ever breaks. And I run into pilots and skydivers that they have their first malfunction or emergency at the, you know, in their mid twenties to early thirties. And you never know how they're gonna they're gonna perform. It's like, that's the first time anything's ever happened to you? Wow, I mean, by the time I was 17, I'd rung my bell lots of times and <laughs> So, hopefully
0: uh, it, uh, they get it. Yeah, yeah ho- ho- like, I, I, I'd, I'd say I, what you're saying is, is is really, really true. And the more people they are exposed to it, the probably the better, because you wouldn't crumble under the pressure, which is bringing me on to the, to the next point, because this is where you, you need to have your head about you. So you've got your hours, you've gone to your friend's dad, and you've asked him for the, for a job, um, and he's, he said yes. So now you're about to start ferry flying. Um, Where was your first ferry flight to?
1: The first flight I got hired to do was, uh, it was a Beach Duchess, which is a small, light twin. And he'd hired me to ferry it from St. Paul, Minnesota, which is kind of by Chicago for you in the UK, and all the way to Lisbon, Portugal. So our first route was going to be St. Paul to Bangor, Maine. That's where we cleared customs. And then from there to St. John's, Newfoundland—that's the island on the east coast of Canada—and from there it was going to be fifteen hundred miles of open ocean down to Santa Maria in the Azores, and that was uh, that was my first test. I mean, they didn't have me start doing any any small ferry flights, anything around the S, like first one Portugal.
0: It was quite, kind of nice, though, to give you two engines across the Atlantic rather than just the one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well they actually had to because back then to ferry a single engine plane over the ocean you needed a single engine waiver from the Canadian government because they'd had they'd had to spend so much time and money looking for dead pilots out over the, over the Atlantic who were ferrying um, so you so they they made a rule that you know you could ferry the first time by yourself if you had two engines but to go on a single you had to get tested by the Canadian government. So that first one was a twin, um, but I was alone in the cockpit. You know, it was all me.
0: Because you, you were going the same place as your boss, but for, wasn't there a law that you had to have a 20-minute gap between you or something? So he had to go first and then it was yourself that followed.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate, but, you know, the Oceanic Control made us se- we separated 15 to 20 minutes in between takeoffs, so we didn't run into each other, I guess. So even though... We were in the same sky he was flying a, a turbine 206 um we were you know 50 60 miles apart
0: and then um, when you lined up because i remember you saying in in the book you you were sat there lined up was there any point you thought oh, i'm just gonna turn around and shut this down because this is this is quite scary
1: yeah it was it was really interesting as as i sat there <laughs> And let me tell you, 15, 20 minutes waiting for your turn to, to fly over the ocean for the first time is an eternity. Yeah, you're like checking everything 15 times. And then you're just like waiting, waiting for this. second. that. So that took a long time. And that thought really ran through my head of, you know, am I really gonna do this? Am I am I brave enough? Am I do I have the skills? Am I really crazy enough? And it really wasn't a, it really wasn't a a serious thought to me that I wouldn't, you know, I I was honest with myself and really asked myself, are you really ready to do this? And it was just, of course, you know, I almost was asking myself that question out of obligation. Well, I suppose I should seriously look at the pros and cons of this, but my inner crazy scary Carrie said, well, of course we're doing this. Let's come on, let's go. (laughs) What's the question? (laughs) Obviously we're going to do this. Not a serious question whether we're really gonna do it or not I was like yeah we're doing this <laughs> <laughs> kind of how I am it's got my how I got my nickname scary carry I don't I, I I analyze things very carefully but in the end I pretty much do it
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that so it wasn't even really a question it was just a thought and it was just brushed to the side really quickly Of oh, yeah no we're we're gonna put the throttle to the stop so we're going oh,
1: we're gonna do this pretty much pretty much
0: Well, <laughs> oh, your your first crossing um did it went really smooth didn't it until your boss had lost his vacuum pump um just off the azores
1: yeah yeah i was uh you know you have all these thoughts in your head you know, like what are all the things that can go wrong to me i wasn't worried about him he'd 10,000 hours he'd got hundreds of hundreds of crossings he's the expert you know and i and nothing, nothing bad happened to me. I'm like, this is great. I'm, I was having a great day until he called me and he lost his vacuum pump. So I was like, oh geez, that's kind of serious, especially because he's an old guy, kind of as old as I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to, I hate to think about that. Like I remember he, he was so ancient at the time. Then I think like, yeah, I'm that age now, or maybe even a little <laughs> older. So uh, kind of, ah, I think I'm old. Um, but yeah, he hadn't practiced his no gyro, partial panel stuff in 30 years, and uh, so he was pretty nervous about it. So we came up with a solution. He he wanted to he was going to use me as his artificial horizon. We'd fly formation because the second half of the first half of the trip was beautiful, sunny weather. But the second half was in the dark. The forecast was for low clouds, high winds, um, and heavy rain. So he was pretty nervous about doing that with. A partial panel so we went to the first island in the chain of the Azores, and he circled there and waited for me and we caught up he flew formation on me all the way to Santa Maria which which was kind of scary because no we hadn't practiced that at all and his formation skills weren't really awesome at that point in his career if they ever were and so I'd look over my shoulder and see those that red and green position light lights you know Coming closer, backing up. All of them like Jesus, don't hit me! <laughs> but uh, but we made it.
0: That's it. But it wasn't like that. Wasn't the end of the debacle when you called for landing? Didn't they refuse you a formation landing?
1: Right, right. It's like well, that would have been so easy. They're like no, no. I'm like great. So he had this brilliant idea. He didn't want to fly a, a partial panel approach, so he figured you. I, he'll circle there and and wait for me to go in and land because they wanted us to separate. And I was to tell him how low the clouds were and if they weren't too bad, he was gonna on his own, just out over the ocean, descend down until he got below the clouds at night in the rain in complete darkness to find the VFR, the fine tiny thousand foot layer of VF, uh, clear air. And then he could see hopefully see the island, the lights of the island and fly to it visually. That was his plan, which I thought was pretty stupid, but hey, he was the boss. Um, so I shot the approach, and I, I believe it was like 800 to 600 feet broken. It wasn't horrible. And so I landed, and when he finally came in, he was kind of upset because he scared the hell out of himself because he didn't break out to 500 feet or so and very nearly ran into the ocean, so yeah that was that was my first transatlantic leg in my fairy flying career quite
0: you didn't even get to the end of your fairy flight that was on the very first leg where right we're
1: still in the middle of all that had already happened I'm like wow so this is fairy flying nice I loved it i i thought that was cool as hell I really did like that's awesome i i want to do this for a living i just loved it who did the rest of the, the, the lakes go to,
0: to Portugal? Did that go? It couldn't have got much worse than that, really.
1: <laughs> uh, the Portugal wasn't too bad. We had to stay there for a couple of days while they shipped him another vacuum pump. And then we, we put a new vacuum pump on his plane on the ramp in Santa Maria. And no, neither one of us have our AMP, and p But uh, that's a long time ago. And he's dead, so he can't get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we got to... It, Dropping the plane off in Portugal was uh that was the uneventful part of the trip because you you would then have
0: to take the 206 onto Switzerland if I recall
1: yeah yeah uh, so we went to uh stopped in uh palm America and dropped off some some airplane parts that we uh had kind of smuggled in didn't did clear customs there and a good friend there we my, my my boss liked to smuggle airplane parts into Europe because the cust- the customs was too. uh too high so every time like my plane was loaded full of airplane parts i asked like so what's all this you know they're they're spares and they're like they're not spares this these parts are not for this plane i know i know our plane parts this is like well, yeah Yeah, we're smugglers huh yeah we're smugglers like at least it wasn't drugs okay so we stopped there and then we flew from there to switzerland um and we did that at night in the snowstorm of course because that's what you do when you're a ferry pilot you don't wait for good weather you fly in it almost seems like we find the the worst weather possible to fly in that's just kind of what it seems to be and uh so he was flying he had me navigating and we're going up an airway and switzerland college says when you reach uh this radial off the zurich vor turn in on that radial and i said okay and i tuned in the vor and Tuned in that radio and the needle sw- swung to the left or right. I can't remember. Swung to, swung to the right, and my boss saw that. Goes, oh crap! We passed it, and he immediately started, did a, uh, did a right turn to go back to that radio because he thought we'd passed that intersection. And I'm screwed. No, no, we haven't passed it. We're the needle is supposed to be that way. And no, no, we passed it. And he finished about 180 degree turn and we're remember we're at night in a snowstorm over the alps um we we're pretty high i think we we're at 12,000 feet and a lot of the alps are higher than that and atc calls up and says hey where are you guys going and he goes i'm sorry we passed that field. we're turning back toward it now and they said no no you're not there yet keep going like like i'm thinking see i told you and he goes oh shit and he didn't say anything so he he turns back, so he'd made a right turn, and then he made a left turn to go back the heading. So instead of continuing a 360, and putting us on the original course, he'd done a big S. And now we were a number of miles right of our original course that we were supposed to be on, on this airway, which is there for a reason to keep you from hitting those granite clouds called mountains, and, so it was kind of quiet in the cockpit. I didn't want to give him a big old, I told you so, cause it's my first trip and he's the boss and he's mad cause he's screwed up in front of the new guy. And we're just sitting there and we had a, that plane had a radar altimeter and I watched it and it said zero or full deflection, whatever, whatever it should be when you're at 12,000 feet. And I saw it twitch. And I, I just happened to be looking at it. I'm like, that's weird. It shouldn't do that. And it, twitched again, and then it went up a bit, and then it went, whoop, to about 500 feet, and then, whoop, back down, like, or less than 500 feet, like, holy shit, there's only one thing that makes a radar altimeter register, and that's stuff. <laughs> it's mountaintop. <Like>, All <laughs> stuff. Shit, peak, climb, climb. We just flew over a freaking mountain. We <laughs> were like, oh, Jesus, oh. So yeah, that was, uh, then we, you know, the rest of the flight into Zurich was uneventful, but uh, that ended my very first ferry flight, or ferry trip, and boy, it was a, it was an interesting one, I'll tell
0: you. It certainly was, and judging by, by reading from the rest of them, that was just the beginning. It, it didn't stop there, it got more and more interesting. Like your first trip down through Africa, where you had lost instruments and had to fly, the whole, had to hand fly the whole thing and you lost your GPS. Um, yeah, tell us about that.
1: Um, losing the alternator or being lost? There's two two parts of that. <laughs> Let's start with the alternator. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, ferrying a plane to, to Tanzania from St. Paul and there, there's a lake from Agadir, Morocco to Abidjan, the Ivory Coast and it's flying straight south down the, the bulge of Africa over the Sahara. And you fly that route at night because down along the equator, it's an area called the Intertropical Convergence Zone. And that is an area of the world that pretty much guaranteed big thunderstorms every afternoon. So to avoid those, you fly that route at night. You leave about 10 o'clock at night, fly all night. It's about a 14-hour leg. And arrive down in the Ivory Coast in the morning because the weather's usually calm in the morning. So I'd left Agadir, Morocco, right ahead of a sandstorm. They kind of kicked me out of there earlier because the sandstorm was right on, you know, approaching the airport quickly. So I got out of there. And right after I took off, they told me the airport's closed. So, so no, you know, that's my back door was shut. And the 14-hour hour leg down to Abidjan, there's only one airport right in the middle. It's in Bamako, and it's a place my boss told me, you don't ever want to go there. But, but I didn't. I had plenty of gas, uh, you know, ferry tanks in the plane. And about three hours into it, an RBL came on. Uh, RBL uh, stands for really bad light. It's those red lights on the instrument panel. (laughs) You don't want to see RBLs. Uh, Looked at it like, alternator, huh? Look at the ammeter and it's showing a, a little draw. I'm like, yep, I lost my alternator. Great, oh well. Go back to your training. Like, okay, shut everything off. If I can autopilot. Unfortunately, that takes a lot of juice. Shut Turn the lights all the way down. And the last thing I did was I we had an HF radio in the plane. That it's kind of like a ham radio. We put them in the planes when we ferry fly, so it's we can talk long distances. And I keyed the mic to tell ATC that they weren't going to hear from me for the rest of the night because I didn't wasn't going to have any electricity. And when I keyed the mic. I realized I made a huge mistake because all the lights in the plane just went completely black and I just sucked all the juice out of my battery because the HF radio uses a ton of power. I'm like, oh crap, that was stupid. You know, I got my flashlight out and shining instrument panel because it's completely dark outside. I mean, even if it wasn't, I, even if I wasn't in the clouds, you're out over the Sahara and there's not a light at all. So there's, no artificial there's no horizon there's no 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 visual clues at all and as you know if you don't have if you can't see outside you need to use your instruments you got to be able to see them and at night if you don't have lights instrument lights you need a flashlight so that was uh the start of a really long night uh eight and a half hours flying by flashlight and that was that was hard and long that was also the night i really i learned the lesson if you're gonna fly at night always carry two flashlights um, yeah i didn't i didn't have two flashlights this is before cell phones that was my only form of illumination and when it came time to change the batteries in the in the flashlight i realized that's this is scary if i screw this up i'm going to die i mean where are you ever in a situation where if you if you drop a battery while changing lights in a flashlight you die because if i if i drop the batteries i wouldn't be able to see the lights in the instrument panel I'd lose control of the plane so I practiced that a few times before I actually did it but I was successful and uh yeah but the sun finally came up and I had to do some interesting uh navigation to find the airport finally found it which was uh, quite a relief no radio couldn't get a hold of the tower they didn't have a light gun even buzzed them they weren't waking up so I just had to pump the landing gear down because I was flying a Cessna 210, so it's retractable gear. And there's no way to th- you pump until it, it stops pumping, there's no way to tell if your gear's down and locked because the green lights don't work. And then just come on in, and land. And uh, <laughs> and you would think that would be the end of it like, hey, you made it. Nope, they came and dragged me into the airport manager's office. He was all yelling at me, all pissed off, wanted to throw me in jail. Where have you been? You should have been talking to people like, I had an emergency, like, you didn't want to hear it. But uh, he was on going on vacation that evening and didn't want to deal with me. So he kicked me out of his office after I wrote up a report. That was just the first, not even the first, that was just one section of that huge trip. I mean, (laughs) after that, I flew to Kaboom. My GPS crapped out for good halfway there. This was back in the days that GPS was just invented. They They weren't very good. Then the next flight I was flying from Libreville, Gabon, all the way across the entire continent of Africa to uh, Dodoma, Tanzania, and I arranged for a um, a weather briefing that morning because I'm flying across an entire continent. So you want to have a pretty detailed weather briefing, you know, it's kind of kind of good. And I got there, and the guy handed me a mimeograph paper that it was a sat- infrared satellite shot of the continent of Europe, or I mean of Africa, and said. He showed me the two white blobs on one side that were thunderstorm areas. You see this? Very, very bad. You see this? Very, very bad. Handed me the paper and told me to have a nice flight. And that was it. No forecast, no winds aloft, no nothing. Just, this is what Africa looks like. Well, yeah, I know what Africa looks like. (laughs) So took off and that flight was going to be, I mean, I knew I was going to have, with the GPS down, I knew it was going to be about, a six to eight hour window in there that I wasn't going to have any nav aids, you know, no, no NDBs, no VORs. I accepted that with, with no winds Law forecast. So it was just like point East. And I got to the point where I just started picking up VORs and I didn't pick up the first VOR and I'm thinking, well, okay. Am I lost? Am I so far off course that I've, I mean, I should get this VOR out a couple hundred, at least a hundred miles. I mean, how lost am I? And that area came and went and the sun went down and I had to battle a line of thunderstorms. And the next VOR that I should be picking up came and went and I couldn't pick up that one either. And at that point, I'm really questioning my, uh, my navigational skills. Like, okay, here I am at night over at somewhere over Africa with, haven't had a nav aid in eight hours, um, cool, nice. They're having a good time, digging it. Figured, do I, do I kind of take a left and try to find the city of Nairobi? I mean, it's a big city, maybe I can find that. I was kind of worried about missing the shoreline and flying out over the Indian Ocean, because that's a definite possibility if there's no lights down there. Uh, but I decided to, to press on with my my original heading, my flight plan heading just because it didn't seem that windy. So I, I think I shouldn't be too far off. And eventually I hit the NDB at the destination, which was quite a relief. See that needle start flickering like, yes! <laughs> Civilization, the world exists. Uh, I came in and landed. And I was talking to the pilots that, that worked there. We were having dinner and I told them my story. And they kind of looked at each other like, well, didn't anybody tell you those those two VORs? They never work because they're run by generators. And as soon as they do, the government delivers the gas to them, the local warlords come and steal the gas. So oh, uh, oh, great! I mean, little information I could have used about twelve hours ago, guys. <laughs> so uh, that was a, that was an interesting trip. That was, was really going
0: to say like most people don't get these stories from years and years of flying, and this for you was just one trip. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I was like, "Oh, well, that's a, that's Thursday." <laughs> <laughs> I'm for, going going back to what you were saying
0: about loving the adventure and all that, I that didn't even phase you.
1: No, it didn't. It's which is weird. I, I sometimes I'm kind of honest with myself and I examine that part of who I am. It's like this stuff should really make you nervous. <laughs> Why do you keep doing this? Like, because I love it. I you know like that trip. I loved that trip. You know, I love nothing more than an emergency, a, malfun- a parachute malfunction. If I have to cut away my chute and go to the reserve, I love it. I've had to do it 26 times. I absolutely, wow. I love it. It's another little bit of extra excitement in an otherwise boring day of skydiving, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> it's, it's-
1: <laughs> as, long as, as long as I can find a way out, you know, that's great. Because anybody can fly an airplane on a beautiful, calm, sunny day. You know, it takes a real pilot to handle the emergency because that's what you're paid for. That's why you get the big bucks at some point. Those aren't big bucks, but that's why you tr- do all that training. You you train for the emergency. Um, and if you get that emergency and you handle it properly and you come through, that is, that's quite an achievement. You know, I, lo- I love that. Now, for some people, they're like, they don't want that. They, they want nothing to ever go wrong and I don't fault the person for that at all. They're the normal people. I'm the abnormal one. I fully, I fully admit that I'm a sick and twisted individual. And um yeah my life is not a how-to book. This is don't don't you shouldn't subscribe to be me. I'm I'm uh I should be dead a number of times over, but I'm not so a lot of it's just you know a lot of it's luck too
0: yeah we're always told that you were probably just saying you said it in the book a few times you've got a bag of luck and a bag of experience and by the time that the bag of luck runs out you should have a bag full of experience
1: yeah yeah for sure and and that's kind of where i'm at in my career i've i still got i've still got some luck in there i've had a couple of things every once in a while that oh that was kind of lucky but my experience really really helps and it's actually allowing me to avoid a lot of these emergency situations because I, I realize okay, I in this, in this situation, here's my back door. There's my out, and this equipment is going to come in handy in case something happens. Because you got to remember, luck is really opportunity where opportunity meets experience and preparedness. You know, I mean, when I when I lost the alternator over Africa. It was luck. it wasn't just luck that I was able to fly all night, hand fly all night by flashlight, and find the airport and pump the gear down and come through safety. I mean, I had been flying for a while at that point, and I was able to not panic, um, figure stuff out, and you know, make my way through the rest of the night. You know.
0: Because that, that came in handy for you because you had a scenario where um, you had a different kind of setup for your ferry tank and your ferry tank wasn't pressurizing to start putting fuel into the wing tanks um, and your quick thinking you managed to to figure that out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was flying a F thirty three Bonanza, I was delivering it to Paris, and when I got to Saint John's, you know we had ferry tanks in the planes. Um, I looked at the winds aloft. Now, the original plan was to go down to the Azores, which is our normal plants, 1,500 miles, and then refuel, spend the night, and then go up to Paris from there. And when I looked at the winds aloft in, in Canada, I saw that it had smoking tailwind straight across the Atlantic at 15,000 feet and above that would allow me to skip the Azores. And said I thought, like, it's a long trip, it's 2,500 miles, but with the I think it was like a 50 knot tailwind, I could make it all the way across in one leg. And, you know, I'd save I'd save a day. I'd, I wouldn't have to go down to the Azores, so I would save all the fuel going down to the Azores enough. I'd save the hotel, the comp- save the hunt, company the hotel fee, the taxi, the food, the whole day of everything. So, remember, that's that's the goal of a ferry pilot, is to deliver the airplane as cost efficiently as possible. Any poor you can save a dime that's pretty much profit for the company. And being able to skip the Azores would save the company quite a bit of money. And that was the only reason that I decided to go to Paris and skip the Azores. The fact that I was going to have another full day in Paris to myself had nothing to do with it. I swear to God. It's a uh, single guy in Paris, is, you know why why would I want that? <laughs> it was <have> been terrible. <laughs> <I opted> to... <laughs> Take the little more dangerous route to Paris. Okay, so I did. What do you want? <laughs> um, and the way we had that ferry tank set up was usually the ferry tanks is they're metal tanks inside the plane, and we run a an air pressure line from the top of the tank down through the bottom to the belly of the aircraft, and usually we take a an inspection plate that has a hole drilled in it, and we put it we mount a J tube on through that inspection plate. And point it into the slipstream, and that that ram air pressurizes the tank and forces the fuel from the ferry tank out to the wing tanks. Um, but on this particular trip, I don't remember why, but we didn't have we didn't have an access cover panel with a hole in it, and it was a brand new plane. and the, the boss said, so "There's no way he's drilling a hole in the bottom of this brand new plane." Um, so what he was going to do is what well, what they did. Him and the mechanic, they mounted that. J tube kind of sticking sideways through the side of one of these access panels and screwed it on as tight as they could and held it in place with a bunch of duct tape. Which, when I saw that at first, like that looks pretty sketchy. I eh. but you know, I went and jiggled, you know, you wiggle it a little bit, like seems secure. And he says it'll work, you know, these are the guys with all the experience and just try it out on the way to Maine, try it to St. John's if it works fine, keep going, like okay. So I would worked for the two previous previous days, so I was pretty confident in it. And confident means complacent, and never get complacent. That's uh, that's where I that's that's my biggest problem these days. I, I really have to fight complacency because I do you know me for me jumping in an airplane and flying some places like hopping in your car and going to the store. I yeah. do it so much. Same thing with skydiving, and I really have to force myself not to be complacent to like, hey, remember, this is dangerous. Do your checks, do your stuff. So, and that night I was still in my bulletproof, young man, complacent uh, part of my career. So I just took off and headed out over the Atlantic. About four hours into it, my wing tanks were getting pretty low. So I switched on the ferry tank and it's got a plastic sight gauge behind it. Went back to read my book. A few minutes later I noticed that the, the fuel wasn't moving. Uh oh. <laughs> Oops. That's not good. Like, yeah, I switched the tank, right? That's it should work. Yeah, it should. Now, like at, it's really at that point I realized what a huge mistake I'd made because I should have tra- I should have tested the ferry tanks earlier while I was still before I hit the point of no return. Mm-hmm. The point of no return or they also call it equal time point is when you're flying out over the ocean that's the point where it's equal time distance to the far shore or the where you left. And once you pass that, you can't turn around because you won't make it. You don't have the fuel to make it back to Canada, especially with the, the headwinds that I would have been fighting. So I really needed that gas because I definitely didn't have enough fuel to make it to, to Paris, even, even to Ireland where I was going to kind of be close to. So I jiggled the handle and I did a bunch of zero G maneuvers, try to figure, you know, try to shake it. And that didn't work. And I took apart the the, the air pressure line and that should give me a blast of pressurized air. And it didn't. And I figured that's the problem. My pressure line's bad. And I sat there and thought about it. It's like, I got to pressurize this tank. Somehow I got to pressurize it. What can I do? And looked at that hose like, Suppose I could blow in it, you know, like you're blowing up an air mattress. And I did that. I sat and blew as long as I could, and till I till I couldn't get any more pressure in it, which wasn't hot long because the tank was pretty full. And I put my thumb over it and I watched. And a couple of minutes later, it worked. It you know it moved it moved some fuel. Like wow, awesome. I have uh, I have a solution. And I did some math to try to figure out how long, how many times I'm going to have to do this. And that, the math took me a long time because number one, I was flying at 15,000 feet with no oxygen, um, should have had oxygen, but we don't have it. I, we never, I almost never fly with oxygen, but I back then I have a I have a really good high altitude tolerance. I fly up really high, not technically legal, but yeah, I do that anyway. <laughs> but I'm, you're good at flying at high altitude as long as you don't move around, move around a lot or exert yourself much. If you just sit very calmly, I could fly at 18 to 20,000 feet all day long. Wow but hyperventilating into a tank is pretty much the opposite of being calm and not moving. It's really exerting yourself. So that, that really brought on hypoxia. I'm at 15,000 feet, hyperventilating into the tank. The cabin is filled with gas fumes cause I'd opened up the top of the tank. So I was pretty stoned. And, uh, but I realized I was pretty much gonna have to blow into that hose continuously for eight and a half hours to keep the engine running. And that's what I did. And let me tell you, that's that was a long night.
0: It sound, definitely sounds like a long night. I don't envy it for having to do that at all. But um, you, you've had all these like kind of scary moments, um, but you've also had your fair share of awesome moments. And one of them was getting to, you were delivering a plane down to the, the, the president's son in Egypt. And you got to have an absolute blast around the pyramids.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's what's so great about fairy flying. You, you know, you do have the, the, oh shit, dangerous, go, almost going to die moments. But there are so many mo- incredible, incredible experiences you can, that you can only have fairy flying, like the one you're talking about. I was delivering a Cherokee 6 to Ammar Sadat's son, and I picked him up in, um, Alexandria, Egypt, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, and we were flying together to Cairo, where he had his airport. And as we got close to Egypt to Cairo, asked me, "Hey, have you ever ever seen the pyramids?" I go, "No, I've never been to Egypt before. This is awesome." I mean, I was just so psyched. I mean, that's what's so great about flying, ferry flying. I'm getting to travel the world and I'm like Egypt, awesome. I get to go to Egypt, so cool. And he goes, "Well, let's go fly over the pyramids." I'm like, cool you bet sign me up and uh we got close to the egypt to the pyramids and like wow there they are the pyramids of egypt you know like one of my life's goals to fly to to egypt and he goes do you want to buzz them <laughs> oh, yeah can we he goes i'm at war's son i could do whatever i want <laughs> like cool And so we buzzed the crap out of them. We buzzed it three times, right over the sphinx, really low, below the tops of the pyramids, right in between them. I'm going to do it again. You bet. I'm just ripping full power, fast as we can, just right on the deck, right in between the pyramids, three times, just laughing like two schoolgirls, just having the time of her life. After we, we pulled out that third time, he goes, okay, we probably better we probably better get out of here and be like, even I'm going to have to do some explaining about that one, but it'll be fine. So yeah, I mean, I've had, I get to do that stuff. I don't do it a lot anymore. Try not to lose your license, but uh, I got to buzz down the, down the Amazon river first thing in the morning, a couple of times It was so much fun. Um, Buzz across the Africa savanna, looking at giraffes and elephants and, you know, I actually saw natives walking down a trail with the pots on their heads, like, no way. I mean, it's, it's like National Geographic, you know, just um, probably one of the funnest night, days I ever had it was ferrying an Aerostar to Cyprus. And I got to the Southern tip of Greenland, which is absolutely stunning. Um, icebergs and fjords and the ice cap and glaciers. And I was ahead of schedule. So I spent about an hour or so ripping up and down the coast um, I had a slight flight control problem there. I, for some reason, I couldn't seem to get the plane over 50 feet over the over the ocean for that whole hour. or So like, I eventually figured it out, but it was good <laughs> <laughs> slalom in through the icebergs. So you did figure it out. Yeah, yeah. You might gather I like to fly low.
0: So <laughs> you're a man of my own uh, heart. I like been down in the weeds as well. If we go if we go above know. two and a half thousand feet, I start getting the nosebleed. It Doesn't end well for me. <laughs> right, right.
1: I'm afraid of heights, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you, you also had then, um, after all that, quite an interesting moment where you had to rob a bank.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, technically. Uh, I'd, uh, I would I've received a, a letter in the mail from a Spanish bank examiner who said, hey, there's $50,000 in the bank. Is that, uh, in your, in this bank in Palma? Is that is that agree with your records? Like, no, not not really. <laughs> I think I would have remembered depositing $50,000 in a Spanish bank. And it turns out that our friend in, in America, who ran a flight school that we deliver planes to a lot, his manager had been embezzling money from his, his flight school. And he had stolen my identity and opened up a bank account in my name because he'd borrowed my passport, taken a copy of my passport. And... So my friend wanted to know if I could steal the money back from him. Essentially, I'm like, sure. <laughs> See, I've got I've got a problem. It's a medical condition. It's called can't say no You can pretty much talk me into just about anything. So, yeah, I, I flew over there, and we you know we sat. I th- I thought we were going to go into the bank with a lawyer and say this is a phony account. I need to have this money and give it to my friend here and. They, they told me that actually the plan was going to be I was just going to pretend that, that I was just going to demand my money back and pretend it was my money in the first place and basically embezzle the money back from the bank and uh, give it to my friends. So, yeah, we kind of walked into the bank and let me tell you, that was scarier than any ferry flight I'd ever been on because, as you know, a lot of the banks in Europe, the, the doors lock behind you and, uh oh. And I'm taking money out. I did not put this money in the bank. That was not my money. And the bank manager I said, I want to close my account. And he shows me the paperwork. Is this you? And like, obvious forgery. No, I didn't sign that paperwork. It's not me. I, this is not my money. I did not do it. I've never been here before. And I'm lying, going, yep, that's me. And, uh, <laughs> I tell you, I, we, and we actually had to come back because they didn't have all the money in. And hand right now so when we came back I thought I saw undercover cops everywhere I was just I was terrified and they gave us the money and we kept expecting the cops to jump out at us and we finally got out and then there's three grown men because my brother my buddy had brought his lawyer with us and we just started fast walking down the sidewalk and we turned the corner and ran like hell <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. It's, it's amazing. Again, it's a thing that would not have happened uh, if it wasn't for the fairy flying. And every time you take off to a ferry flight, it just seems like you've you've got a story to tell or something's gone wrong.
1: Oh, every time, yeah. There's. I've never been a ferry flight where it's been ho hum, boring the whole time. Every everything, every time there's something, which is which is what I love about fairy flying. I love the challenge. You know, somebody tosses me the keys to a really cool airplane, say. Fly this halfway around the world. Like cool, sign me up. And I and not knowing what's gonna happen is is the appeal. You know, I get all my stuff ready, I bring my tools, I bring my survival kit, and then it's just like I can't, you can only, you can't really prepare for the unknown. You just have to be ready for it.
0: Exactly, and it, it, it's, it beats that rat race up to nine to five as well. It, it's not, get up, go to work, come home, get up, go to work, come home. It You're away for, it could be weeks on end with adventure basically guaranteed.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's funny, you know, like, at the end of each day, you you get to the hotel and you lay down and you're just like, holy crap. <laughs> that was a day. And tomorrow's you- going to be the same.
0: I love it it's like I said, an adventure staring at the thing, you know you're getting yourself into it. as soon as you retract the gear or, or the gear comes off the, the tarmac and it's a bit like oh here we go right what, what's what's in store for us today
1: yeah yeah I love it
0: but, but obviously you, you do and it, it's fantastic I'm loving hearing the stories and but it has to come to an end at some stage so you, you've done you're on your last ferry flight um, knowing that you need to retire at some point but you've uh your last very flight you describe in your book was that before or during the dangerous flight series
1: i was before um yeah i was about uh seven eight years before dangerous flights yeah i pretty much quit because i you know married i had two young kids so i was really pushing my luck a little bit more even though i wasn't scared i was, at, at some point I was kind of realizing I was being a little selfish with my life. You know, I mean, even though I'm not personally scared of dying, you know, I'd like living life to the fullest. And if I die, oh well. At, once I had two young children, I realized that's, I can't think like that anymore. It's not just me that's affected if I die. So I, so I retired. And then dangerous flights came calling. And by that time, you know, my children were mostly grown. You know, they're, they're, I think my son was 17, maybe 16, something like that. So I figured, well, okay, if I die now, he's well on his way. I've turned him into a good, good functioning man. My daughter's a the little older. They're, they're good good kids. So they'll be fine. So I took and and the, that sounded like a great project. And so I started ferry flying again for dangerous flights, which was amazing. It was so much fun. Um, although I tell you. The very first ferry flight on dangerous flights—I hadn't done it in years. It's like you kind of think like, do I still remember how to do this? <laughs> like, and I was the only, you know, real ferry pilot on the show until Pete showed up. None of these other guys really knew oh, like wow. Stu had no idea. Yeah, none of these guys had really done it before. Marcio, then he's—he was he's a real ferry pilot, he delivered jets, but I was the only true single-engine piston ferry pilot on the show. Wow. And the people in the sh- in the program at Corey, they didn't they didn't have any idea what they're doing. So they're looking at me as the expert, like, yeah, I've done it a bunch, but it's been a long time. And like, so that was a lot of pressure. That was, and, and of course you gotta remember when you're doing this with 10 cameras on you, every single step of the way, every mistake you make is gonna be shown to millions of people. Just so you remember, don't screw up too bad because everyone's gonna see it. It's like, great no pressure bring it on i love the pressure
0: <laughs> I, I find that brilliant how is like cory who was, who was the the owner and the, the founder of this very company hadn't actually ever done it before and had no idea what what you're know, looking at you for the expert
1: yep yep they, he basically he owned car dealerships just before the show started and wanted to get into aviation and just kind of through happenstance started ferrying with that that one randy show that's how the show kind of got started but yeah they really had almost no experience in ferrying planes at all wow Um, yeah so it was pretty much the first season was pretty much on my shoulders to to get get us going but then we started you know starting to figure it out (laughs) it worked out one, one of the
0: episodes that stuck with me was, I think it was your first time in a jet, a, a proper jet, um, where you guys had, had to ferry it across. What what was that like coming from your single and dual-engine piston to, I, I know you flew some turbines as well, but to be put in an actual an actual jet?
1: That was cool. That was really cool. Like um, yeah, I can say I'd never flown a jet before, and I was a little... The instrument panel was kind of daunting it was a Garmin G1000 first one I'd flown and I you know I'm used to steam gauges and old stuff and it's like wow this is this is pretty cool so I was a little behind the power curve on that um it's kind of funny the first day when we fly, fly the sh- film the show usually the first day or at some point we we, we meet up with a camera ship because when we're flying the show we don't have a plane following us it looks like we do but we don't. We're all by ourselves. So we always have one day that we work with a, either a helicopter or or a ship or an airplane that has a multi-million-dollar geosynchronized stabilized um, camera on it, and we go out and they get some air-to-air shots with us. You know, stuff by clouds, stuff over some water, stuff over jungle, so they can use it during the show. And so that first morning in in Australia, Marcy and I take off with the jet, and the camera ship was a helicopter and so our job that whole afternoon was to fly fly with that helicopter and helicopters are not fast like jets so it was it's kind of scary and the, the first day you know we 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 link up with the helicopter fly in formation and marcio's trying to fly formation in a jet with a helicopter using the autopilot well, okay. It's like clicking the autopilot left and right and it's not working at all and we're gonna die and we're we're all over the place and it's just not working and I'm you know because Marcy's a, he's an airline pilot and a jet pilot and they don't they don't fly they don't ever touch the controls they're autopilot guys and after about 10 minutes of near-death experience I asked him was like do you mind if can I can I fly <laughs> I know I've never flown this plane before I have zero experience but you're really bad at this. <laughs> I think we're going to die. And this is, I'd been fly. i have been on the show for a while. This was his first time in the show. So he'd never done the air to air stuff. And so he says, sure. And asked him, are there any fl- throttle restrictions? Can I, can I wreck the engine? No, you can do whatever you want. And he didn't, and he didn't get to touch the controls of the airplane for the rest of the day. <laughs> you know me. Um, and I tell you, that was probably one of the funnest days of flying I've ever had. Cause I got to go in a jet and do wing overs with the jet and fly under the helicopter and steep turns and bust through tops of clouds and just do all kinds of, we spent the entire day, got to fly into Sydney Harbour, circle around Sydney Harbour and Marcia just had to sit there the whole time with pouting in the side because he couldn't do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it was all
1: hand flown as well,
0: which for a jet. Was, really- yeah,
1: you got you to hand fly this stuff and he just, he's not, a, airline pilots are not hand flying pilots, so.
0: No, I think there was a statistic out that it was something like they fly for six minutes at a time, and three minutes on takeoff and three minutes on landing, and then the rest is all the computer that flies for them.
1: Yep, yep, pretty much. He, we, it's less than that. His his whole mantra is when we got when we hit five hundred feet, autopilot on, and he wouldn't let me. He wouldn't allow me to hand fly it oh, well. when, when we were on the real flights. Like no, even if it's my turn to fly. It's like do, do, you can fly the approach if you want to fly the approach, but even then, you want the autopilot to set you up on the approach so it's all autopilot um which i hate but uh you know that's but that's that's their method you know it's their job is safety and fuel fuel savings and i get that
0: Um, yeah
1: Um, was any of that show that
0: we seen was any of that staged or was that all true to life and dramatic as they made it out to be
1: there's only one thing in the entire show that was staged that was on our very first flight um i was flying to navajo to, to uh Argentina with Stu, it might not have been the first episode, but for whatever thing, but that was the, that was my first flight. And it was interesting. I'd done a a Zoom meeting, Zoom kind of audition and they didn't take me right away. And then they called me up and said, one pilot bailed out. Do you still want to do, you know, be on the show? I go, sure. They go, great. Can you be in Florida day after tomorrow and fly to Argentina? Like, oh shit. You mean now? Yeah. Like now. Like, oh, okay. Get down there um but anyway the, there's a scene where I'm flying over the Amazon in the Navajo where it looks like we're running out of gas and we weren't and oh. the thing is what when you're yeah I, I hated it because it made me look like an idiot <laughs> so the thing is with the, with the reality shows is normal reality shows they have to make mountains out of molehills because nothing for real ever interesting happens and they're always searching for stuff so on that First trip, they'd come even before we took off. They'd come up with the idea that we were going to run low on gas over the Amazon. So they even told me about it a day or two before. And I argued with the producer. I argued with the company. I said, "No, it's going to make me look make me look like an idiot. This wouldn't happen." Like, "Nope, we need to have drama on the show." So I agreed to it. And that, but we were we were fine (laughs) feel wise. But after that, they realized. They didn't need to do that because it's very, it was all real fairy flying. They're all real planes going real places and they didn't have to fake nothing because all that stuff really happened. I mean, they actually cut out. So you wouldn't believe the cool stuff they cut out of that show. Amazing, amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, the the episodes weren't long enough. So although they did over dramatize, you know, like if they don't hurry up, they're going to have to land. Dun, dun, dun. At night. <laughs> no, not at night. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh
0: I, love, I love going back to what you were saying. We need drama for the show. I was like, no, just saying Kerry, from everything that he's told
1: us yeah, on, said, Don't be- worry. <laughs> we'll have drama. He'll be fine. <laughs> now, if you if you watch the show, I, I come off a little mean on the show because right away the producer told me, okay, here's the deal, Carrie, The audience has to either love you or hate you. Just don't be boring. I Dibs on asshole. Because I, <laughs> I remember, there was one actually where I was
0: thinking, oh, I did that for, where your, your co-pilot was flying and you chopped the power on him to, to, to land it
1: prematurely, basically. And I was like, oh, why was he doing that for? No, that was real. What was it? 100 was <laughs> real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the very first day flying with Corey. We were landing on a pretty short strip with a slight tailwind. And he'd... He had already kind of gooned up the first approach. So we're coming in on a different way. And as he's coming in to land, he left about a quarter of the throttle in. And as he's flaring, he took his hands off the throttle, which is a big no-no, and was flaring. He didn't have that much time at the point. He didn't have a lot of experience. And he was gonna be landing with both hands on the yoke. And with that much throttle up in, we were gonna drift quite a ways down the runway. And it's my responsibility to not rake the airplane. So just instinctively, I went, "Whoa, you chop the throttle, man!" We're it's not a it's not a ten thousand foot runway. This is short. And so we kind of thumped down. Like I probably shouldn't have done that, but it's like, hey, <laughs> made for good drama, dog. That oh, that, oh, that, that, that made that me that. the the control grabber. <laughs> forever known as <laughs> forever now, yeah.
0: so that brings me on then to, to, the, to the kind of like your, your your adventure that you're on currently which is you are the drop zone owner of Skylife Twin Cities how did you manage to get into owning your own drop zone
1: well I've been working uh st- since you know three years after I started skydiving I became an instructor and so that was while I was a ferry pilot one of my off time I was skydiving and enjoying the you know being an instructor uh owns bought some airplanes uh delivered you know provided airplanes to a couple different drop zones and then this particular drop zone in Baldwin, Wisconsin which is now Skydive Twin Cities came up for sale and thought you know that's what I want to do. I mean, I, I love the whole lifestyle and might as well be the boss because I hated working for other people because they never agreed with me. <laughs> so we we bought that uh, 22 years ago now. So I've been wow. there 22 years. Yeah, Brilliant. I like, love it. Do you fly for yourself as well as run the drop zone? Um, not, not very much. I'm kind of the backup pilot because I've got more stuff to do. I'd rather skydive. I do enjoy flying skydivers. We right now we have a our main plane is a Cessna Grand Caravan with a oh, nice. nine hundred horsepower Garrett. So much fun! Uh, you beat the skydivers to the ground. It's a rocket ship, man. It climb, gets that fourteen thousand feet in twelve minutes, and Whoa. get to the ground ahead of the skydivers. It's really fun. But you know, we are, normally have a normal full time pilot, and I spend my day most of the day I'm skydiving. I think I made <laughs> seven hundred jumps last summer.
0: Wow! Just in the summer,
1: yep. <laughs> four <laughs> months because we were locked down for two months for COVID. So, wow, yeah.
0: it's still a hell of a lot. Because um, my dad used to be chief instructor in the Irish Parachute Club, and um, even well, Irish weather and stuff like that, it was never that that kind of reliable as a, as a full time thing. But geez, seven hundred jumps in a summer was unheard of.
1: Yeah, some of our main instructors they do over a thousand. Last year, a couple of guys did over a thousand jumps in four months. Wow, that's
0: madness. Yeah. <laughs> is, there any, is there any jump that you've done that stands out to you particularly that, that you always look back at and go, wow, I can't believe we, we did that, or I can't believe that was, that's, that's what we, we were in that situation?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was hired by the, the Shrine Circus. The Shriners in the, in the U.S. are as a charity group, and they, they, they promote circuses. And they wanted me to dress up in full clown as a clown with the whole white makeup and the big, the big wig and the whole works and landed downtown Minneapolis. Which is a, it's a major city to, pr- to promote the circus. And so I agreed and I was terrified because it was in the middle of all these tall buildings. I mean, another one of these things I shouldn't have let myself get talked into. And we're flying along and we're going you know, right up, right up Main Street, you know, because we couldn't get very high. It was a, it was a low jump. And the door opens too early. The pilot was an experienced pilot and the door was slamming up. And I kind of deal with that. And I went to put my goggles on and they got all the, the makeup on my face smeared over the, the lens of the goggles. And I couldn't see anything. And like, we're, we're supposed to be jumping. I'm like, I can't get it on. And I threw those away and I got a spare pair and I couldn't fit them over the wig. And I'm struggling and the spot's getting longer. I'm like, I was past the point where I should have jumped out and I finally said, the heck with him. And I dove out, opened up the parachute and I looked in the, the spot. It was a tiny little vacant lot in the middle of downtown that I was supposed to land in and it was really far. I'm like, holy crap, I, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. And everything else is tall office buildings. I mean, 100 story buildings. You're like, holy crap. But I, I was able to get over there and I turn around and hit into the wind and inside this little area, they had a big construction crane. And a gust of wind caught me, and it looked like I was going to come straight down on that and break both my legs. I'm like, wow, this is going to hurt a lot. And I sunk down below the level of the buildings. The wind died. I got a surge and came and landed right in front of the TV cameras. Like, woo I meant to do that.
0: (laughs) I love it. That's so cool, especially when it wasn't meant to work out or when it wasn't looking like it was going to work out. And all of a sudden, bam, it couldn't have been any better.
1: Right, exactly. It was just like, my heart was going, oh, man. (laughs) <laughs> that was scary.
0: That I was that was, a... well, was was that probably scarier than some of the stuff you had with the um fairy flying, or would that be kind of that still sit on top as, as scary as a fairy flying?
1: Well, you know, when it has stuff like that happens, it's only scary after the fact because again, while I was in that situation, I'm too busy to panic, I got stuff to do. You know, it's like, even when I turned in and looked like I was going to land on those, on that crane with all those cross members that were going to break me, I was looking like, all right, well, where do I put my legs? How am I, how am I going to, what's the best way to smash into all this metal? Because there's no sense to just going, ah, because that doesn't help. You know, if you got time to panic, you got time to do something more productive.
0: Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Kerry, your book is called uh, Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. If anyone is interested in getting hold of that book and reading in detail about your, your adventures, where can they get that from?
1: Uh, it's available in paperback and ebook on Amazon. It uh, should have an audio book coming out in a month or so. Or if you'd like a signed copy, you can go to my website, which is kerrymccauley.com or email me at kerry at kerrymccauley.com. Um, and I'll sign one and get one right out to you.
0: Brilliant. Kerry, you've had your fair share of adventure and I really, really appreciate you coming on and having a chat with us uh, this evening. Thank you so much and have an absolute fantastic rest of your day.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. Nice talking to you.